0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So, if you need batteries for your truck, batteries for your trail cameras, TV remote controls, flashlights, you name it, Interstate Batteries has what you need. They have thousands of retail locations all over the United States. So stop in, talk to a battery specialist, or for more information,
1: visit interstatebatteries.com. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. I'm trying to remember, I was thinking back to when we first started talking to each other and I want to say it was like five ish years ago. I remember seeing a video that you had done on, I think it was your Guido's web system and a multi-step aider and how you're using that to be able to climb. It seems like forever ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was back in 2014. That like the Guido's web stuff, but, um, I don't know if we had talked before or not. Like, cause I'd, I watched your videos and still on YouTube, and I don't know if we had talked before, but, yeah, it was, it was a little while yeah? ago.
1: Yeah, and you had kind of a side channel, too, right? It was, yeah, you your Flinging Arrows was kind of your main channel, but then you guys had, like, was it uh, Extreme Pursuit or something like that, that was kind of a side channel with Hans? Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that was back in 2012, and we did it for a couple of years and then kind of let it go, but, yeah, we were on the same time.
1: Okay. So, what I really want to talk about today is your deer hunting style. You're obviously a pretty mobile hunter, have been for a long time, and you're based in West Virginia, which, from what I understand, and I've never been there, it's pretty hilly terrain. You guys got some public, some private, and you guys got some land that was like old old mines or, or something like that. And it's just, in general, pretty steep terrain. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, our, our terrain is definite hill country, if not
0: mountain country so it's a lot of you know big timber um not a whole lot of edge to it you know it's a it's kind of all monoculture i guess you could say but um pretty tough hunting not a lot of mature deer um we can kill three bucks here or throughout the season so it's uh it's tough to find deer it's it's tough to hunt a mature i should say but so uh, it's definitely a challenging state to hunt, at least the area that I'm in. Does,
1: this, does it seem like every time a deer gets to, you know, like two and a half, like they're, not many people are holding out for them but because you can shoot three bucks a year. I mean, it's, that that's part of why it's so challenging to find one that's a little bit older.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You know, guys will shoot the first two and a half year old they see, they know that they have a chance of, you know, maybe a up or something bigger and then usually that's the only one that gets a lot of those younger deer get shot so you know targeting a a three and a half year old deer is is pretty common for me and you know i've even shot two and a half year old bucks that were nice deer it's it's um it's definitely a challenge you know it's it's been getting better in the past few years there's getting to be an older age class people are starting to pass some deer up and you know i've got some deer that i've killed that are five and a half and uh, others that are even older than that. So it's, it's getting a little bit better.
1: Yeah. I mean, it seems to be, you can never, never complain about shooting one like that. Um, especially in places that aren't known for producing, um, larger, older age class deer and and have the regulations to support it. So that's definitely, I would say you're from the sounds of it and, and just kind of seeing your, you know, following you over the years, I'd say you're you definitely are most likely in the the higher tier in terms of being able to get the most out of what's available.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a struggle and, you know, I've always put a lot of time into it and, you know, before learning certain tactics here in the past few years, I would say just, just hunting a lot is what contributed the most of my success. Just, just being out there as much as I could.
1: Now, have you always hunted mobile, or was that part of some of the learning that you've done over the last few years? Yeah,
0: I've actually always hunted mobile. Um, You know, back when I first started bow hunting my dad, we always used cling stands, and we always kind of bounce around, not hunt the same tree twice, you know, just kind of different areas to see what the deer were doing. And and, when, you know, when I was in my early teens and kind of started hunting on my own, you know, I just doing that. I always had a climber and I would move around and if I would see deer off in the distance, I would kind of see what they were doing and see how they were them, And then I would just move in on them. And, you know, that, that really helped, you know, I, I killed a lot of deer doing that with the climbing stand. And then,
1: you know,
0: as I've evolved, I've, you know, changed up my gear a lot and gone a lot lighter and it's, it's made things a lot easier. And, you know, I feel like every year I learn new things about my hunting and how to pick the exact hot bee. And it's, it's definitely a, uh, a learning, um, I guess there's a learning curve to it, you know, how to hunt that way, but it, it definitely helped me for sure.
1: So are the trees there pretty conducive to using climbing stands or would you oftentimes would the climber feel like there was a lot of trees that you, you couldn't really get in, even though you may have wanted to, based on what you were seeing. Yeah, our, we we can use climbers here pretty pretty much anywhere because we have a lot of poplar and
0: you know oak trees that don't have a lot on them, so it's not too big a deal to find a tree with a climber around here. Um, the bigger issue with the climbing is just climbing up hills around here. I mean, the, you know we've got some pretty steep terrain, and you know whenever I started self filming, you know carrying my pack and all that stuff, you know I was carrying upwards of 50 pounds and you know if you're not in great shape uh definitely not gonna hike that far um you know with that kind of weight and it kind of limits you on on areas that you actually want to hunt so um i'd say the weight is is more of the problem with the climbing stand around here more so than the trees
1: okay and it always seemed to me like Whenever I've been in areas that are kind of that monoculture, hilly type stuff, but you get a lot of the same type of trees. And especially if you get in areas where they're maybe not quite as steep, or at least they're steep, but they're not steep enough to force deer through certain areas. It seems like during the rut, you can usually figure things out a decent amount, but I always felt like outside of the rut, it would just be really, really tough to try and get on deer consistently with the amount of food that is just kind of spread out all over the place.
0: Yeah, for sure, um, and that that brings up a good point. You know, a, most of my here, you know, back in you know when I was first learning to hunt, most of my bucks that I killed were, were during the rut. You know, just kind of figuring out where they're traveling and get lucky and catch one cruising. And I never killed a buck in October in West Virginia until I started diving into more of the beast tactics, like figuring out buck betting and stuff like that. And once I kind of started putting that stuff together, you know, I've killed a buck early season almost every year since 2014, back that I can remember. So, um, just learning some different tactics there um, has definitely helped, and you know, it really helps. Um, I guess outside of the rut, just be consistent every year, kind of have have a plan going into the early season and. Kind of exiting that and then moving on more of what tactics as that time comes.
1: Okay. Take me back to one of the first deer that you killed using those beast tactics. Was it something that you kind of pre scouted and found a bed, or were you just kind of assuming that the deer were bedding in a certain area based on what the topo lines look like?
0: Yeah, so I started reading into the beast tactics back in like 2015 and kind of started scouting. And, you know, basin, you know, my scouting tactics based off of that, what I was learning there and actually found, you know, I had an area that I'd killed several bucks out of and I never really knew why. And then when I kind of started learning about wind-based bedding and, you know, where they would bet on this certain hills, it all kind of clicked for me. And I kind of realized that that point why they were bedding there. So I dove into that area a little bit deeper and I actually found the main bed that, you know, in which can consider use this bed, it just sets up perfect for it. So I located this bed and I always access this area from the wrong direction. You know, I really wasn't taking wind and thermals into account. So I found this bed, I started looking, you know, at a different access route and I figured out a way to get in there. So that summer I ran a camera not too far from that maybe a hundred yards or so in a spot where I could check it fairly easily. So I was in like three or four different bucks using this bed area. And I think it was my very first sit in there with the new access route, you know, different tree that I've never hunted before. I ended up killing still my oldest buck to date. He's five and a half years old. Um, I killed him October 1st. I believe that's when it was October 1st, first sit in there. He, he got up out of that exact bed and uh fed right past me and i was able to kill him and after that it was just it was like a light bulb just switched off you know that actually target a specific buck bed and kill him in the early season so it was it was a pretty cool hunt and still one of my favorites to this day
1: yeah that's super cool when you found that bed can you describe it you say you know it set up pretty much perfectly Was it right on kind of a a knob? Was it just one big main bed or was there a couple beds that were, you know, within a few yards of each other that he could move to? Uh, Just kind of give me a a picture and, and explain it a little bit more. Okay. So this, it's basically the side of a ridge and the
0: ridge runs from, let's say, say West to East and on the northern side of this ridge there's a kind of a knob on the side you know up up toward the high, up toward the top of the ridge um and on that knob is actually some mountain laurel so the ridge is mainly hardwoods and then you've got this little knob that's up for a south southwest wind and a little patch of laurel over there It's about three acres i would say and main bed on in that laurel is right on the edge of it where he can there's a little flat spot and there's a bed right there where he can see you know down the hill in front of him wind coming over his back and then you know if he sees anything you know below him he can turn around and go back up in the laurel thicket and he's and he's gone. So there's the the main bed was right there on the edge. And then as you go back farther into the thicket there's you know some satellite bedding that does a smaller buck use. I mean, like the, the biggest area is using that bed where he can see out from the edge of it looking down down the ridge. But, um, yeah, it's it's not a very big area. It's just, you know, it's the only good pocket of cover on the side of that ridge, and, and it sets up for our predominant wind, which is southwest in the, in the early season. So I think that's
1: why it's good. Hmm. Yeah, it does sound like it sets up pretty well so he can see out Beneath them and in front of them, and then get that wind blown from over the top through that thicket. We don't have mountain Laurel out where I'm at, but we get, there's some places where there's invasive buck, buckthorn and hill country that does a very similar type of thing. Um, and it's not yep. terribly uncommon to find beds like that. So when you sat up and killed that deer on October 1st, is that, is that your opening day, October 1st, or is that just the first day that you hunted that spot?
0: And that was the first day that I hunted that spot. I think our opener was the 28th, and then you know I moved in a couple of days later. I was waiting for the the wind to be right. Um, I think that season, the first couple of days we had a weird like northeast wind, and then I went in there on the first first southwest wind that we had, and uh, he was in there. So,
1: okay, that's what I was hoping you'd get into is that wind direction and and how you set up on there. So you waited till the perfect wind that you figured he was probably for sure going to be betting there where it was to his advantage. So then how did you set up in such a way that you were able to catch that movement, but then still remain undetected? Yeah. So for this hunt, I came
0: in from the bottom. So there's basically a Creek bottom below this ridge and I came in from the Creek bottom and I had to walk up a pretty steep hill, but there's a, a logging road that kind of cuts diagonally up the hill and. I'd say it's about 200 yards from the bed. So there's just enough, especially in the early season, foliage cover that he can't see that far down over the hill. So I come off the logging road out of the creek bottom, and there's basically a ditch that cuts straight up the hill, um, roughly seven yards from his bed. So what I did was I used the the topography to go up the road and then cut up that ditch. And then the tree that I hunted out of was right on the edge of that ditch. So, you know, I accessed with, you know, he couldn't see me because of the the land lays. So with that ditch climbed up the tree and I didn't get pretty high because the exit trail coming out of bedding was almost high level with me. And, um, you know how I figured out where he was traveling out of bedding as well. There was just two or three small rubs, um, Around the edge some you know there's some sapling that backs up to the uh, the laurel thicket itself and there was just two or three fresh rubs coming out out of that edge and that's kind of how I figured out where he was coming out of and um where I set up at was about five yards from that edge and um, I ended up shooting him at 40 yards but he came he came just above the, that rub line coming out of there so it, uh, he didn't follow the exact rub line he was close enough to it he was in rain when
1: he out. so he, did he basically stay on the same elevation line from where he got out of his bed to where he ended up giving you a shot or did he go uphill a little bit or downhill a little bit by the time he got to you
0: um, he was coming downhill he was uh, kind of sidehilling from his bed kind of dropping an elevation You know, he was just kind of browsing as he went it was he stood up probably 30 minutes before dark, and it took him that long to get within 40 yards. The bed was roughly 70 yards, and I shot him at 40, and it took him, you know, almost a half hour to make that distance because he was just, you know, browsing along. So if I would have been even, you know, 30 yards farther out, you know, it would have been dark by the time he got to me. So
1: I had to get in pretty tight. So could you see him get up when he got out of his bed or could you just hear him? Yeah, I actually saw him staying up out of his bed.
0: I couldn't see him when he was bedded um, just because of the way the vegetation was. But as soon as he stood up, I could see his rack and everything and watched him shake off and do that whole deal. And it was, uh, it was pretty cool.
1: Nice. So in that setup, and you said, you mentioned you're pretty high up in the tree, is it, I imagine earlier in the afternoon when you first got in there and set up, maybe you were catching some back and forth winds where you had that strong wind coming from over the top. And then maybe it would kind of lull back down and feel like the wind was getting sucked back up the hill with the thermals. And then I guess by the time you get up in the tree, was it pretty consistent? You could just climb high enough that you were getting mostly the main wind or were you still getting kind of a mixture of wind while the, the sun was still up?
0: Yeah, so the wind that day was fairly breezy. If I remember right, it was like 5 to 10 mile an hour. So it was, it was consistent enough you know, in wind speed that I think being that high really helped me out. The thermals were definitely going uphill, you know, early part of the hunt. But the, the wind direction coming over the top was kind of the thermals and the wind together were kind of going off at an angle. So they weren't, they weren't going straight to him, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And then by the time he got up and got to you, were the, had the thermal switched to start coming downhill yet, or was it still doing what it had been the whole afternoon?
0: Yeah, it was late enough that the wind had calmed down and the the thermals were dropping. So at that point, you know, he's up and he had absolutely no clue that I was there. So, Have
1: you gone back to that same spot since?
0: Yeah, and the funny thing is, the last couple years, it hasn't had a buck. Um, I run cameras on several different bedding areas, and that's one of them. And I just you know, throw a camera up on an exit trail during the summer and check it like he usually wants right before season, just as he's using it. And that spot has not
1: produced another buck since then. Huh. When you hang those cameras close to a bedding area, are you. Are you basically just trying to put it on an exit trail that's somewhere a little bit further away than where you would anticipate actually hunting it? So that even if they do kind of wig out when they see the camera there and alter their patterns a little bit, you'd hopefully be hunting close enough that if that was the case, you'd still be hunting on their unaltered, you know, I guess, travel routes.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. When I'm hanging cameras in the summer, you know, trying to put them in spots that I'm far enough away from bedding. That I can check them without, you know, bumping them out of there. Um, you know, and I don't really care so much that I get pictures of them in the daylight. But if I know which direction they're coming from, you know, these spots, you know, around the coast to, to where I live, I've kind of scattered out enough that I know pretty much where they're going to be. So if I can just get a direction of travel and, um, you know, it's not too far after dark, I pretty much know where they're coming from. So I'm trying to be. I'm trying to get close enough with the cameras that I you know I know where they're coming from, but it's also, you know, you kind of have to be careful and not get in super close to them. So it's, uh, you know, it's a fine line to walk for sure with cameras and you got to be careful with them, especially when you're out in, you know, buck early season, you, know, you don't want to go in and out of there a whole bunch. So yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah.
1: Have you looked at doing trail or uh, cell cameras at all in those type of locations?
0: Yeah, I do use a couple cell cameras. Um, and I usually save those, like I'll run, I'll kind of blanket cameras out and just run a bunch of them. And then once I start hooking in on certain bucks or whatever, I'll, I'll move the cell cameras in there and kind of monitor that way. And
1: that's, that's been, um,
0: I wish I could afford more of them. They're so expensive, but it does work really well.
1: Do you ever put those cameras down in the bottom areas or are you pretty much always putting them on exit trails?
0: Well, I do. It just depends. Every you know, every situation's different. I just, I'm just trying to put them as close as I can, you know, like I said, to hopefully know where they're coming from and don't have to guess, but... You know, I, I don't usually run them on, like, fields and stuff like that unless there's a bedding area, you know, that coincides with that not too far away. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if I'm getting pictures of them, you know, right after dark, I kind of know where they're coming from. But, you know, I, you know, it's like spokes on a wheel. You know, the farther away you get from things, you know, harder to figure out where they're coming from. So I'm trying to get in there pretty close.
1: Yeah, definitely. Do you guys – are you, do you have the ability to shoot – does too or is it mostly just uh you get your buck tags to fill
0: yeah we can actually shoot quite a few does um per year and you know i I definitely try to do that and i'll i have certain spots just for those like field edges and stuff like that that are that are close by but um yeah we we i think we can kill like 13 deer or something like that total in West Virginia, so we can we can shoot quite a few of them
1: oh wow Do you guys have a ton of deer? I mean, I know like it seems in certain areas down south, there's a lot of deer and they're really small and you can shoot a whole bunch of them. Then there's certain areas where it's like you got bigger body deer and you only get like one tag, like Minnesota, for example, you get like one buck tag and some places you don't get even a doe tag. It's like Hunter's Choice. Do you guys have a a pretty high deer population? Yeah. In
0: this area we do. I mean, there's a lot of does. It's, It's nothing to see 20, 30 does in an evening in a field. You know in this area you know as you go farther south or um southeast toward the mountains you know where you know the, the population's a lot less so you know it differs from area to area but where where i'm at specifically there's there's a lot of deer i don't know what the the deer per square mile is but it's, it's fairly high
1: okay and then let's let's talk about pre-rut like when you you're maybe past the the part in the season where you got acorns that they're, and maybe at this point you're still hunting Betty. Um, I'd be interested to figure out, but do your strategies change once you get to like late October and you start seeing more of those, those big scrapes pop up and the bucks are maybe starting to do things a little bit differently.
0: You know, close to the pre I'm trying to get, you know, still pretty close to bedding. I'm looking for that fresh sign. Um, Start focusing more on, you know, if I find a big fresh scrape or something that, that's pretty close to bedding i'll start you know honing in on that that type of area um, i actually killed a real nice buck in ohio in uh, 2017 right on the edge of bedding i think it was october 28th and we had a rooked cold front come in and slipped in down of a bedding area and uh you know he'd come out of there well before dark and i was able to shoot him probably probably an hour before dark so he was up and moving but, you know,
1: he was still close to bedding, but, um, he was just moving a whole lot earlier. Gotcha. And then during the rut, is it, you're pretty much just moving to travel corridors or are you still hunting bedding areas then?
0: Yeah, definitely, you know, more terrain based travel, um, you know, doe bedding, you know, if I, if I can find a terrain feature that kind of forces them, you know, funnels them down that it's between two bedding areas or something like that. That's, uh, that's mainly what I look for during the rut.
1: Okay. And do you still have, would you say as much, um, success during the rut that you always used to have, or do you, would you say that you're even more successful than maybe you had been in the past before you started learning all, all about the, uh, you know, the beast style tactics and things like that. Um,
0: I still have success during the rut. It's, it's definitely more. I'm not going to call it luck. I mean, it, it is still partly luck, it's just getting them to come by you. But um, like as far as patterning and figuring out a certain deer during the rut, I don't have a whole lot of luck with it. I really don't. I, I find myself getting more frustrated during the rut now because you know I I don't know what specific deer are doing. So I'm just I'm mainly relying on you know just trying to find the best travel routes in the area and just sit them as much as possible and hoping that he comes by. And it usually does pay off, but I, I definitely get frustrated with it because there's just, you know, there's no consistency to it and they're just all over the place. So I, these days I like the early season more than I like the
1: rut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like the early season just because it's not as cold. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So you mentioned Ohio. How long have you been hunting out of there? It's it's not too far of a drive, I don't think, from where you're at. Yeah, the place that
0: we hunt, we've had a few different places over there, about two, two and a half hours, so um, definitely not too far. I've been hunting Ohio since uh, t- 2014, I believe, so I've been hunting over there a few years, and I think I've, I've killed a buck over there every year, and uh, it's I find it a lot easier than Or i hunt in west virginia so i usually save my spots in ohio for the pre-rut and the rut and i'll kind of you know i'll try to target a buck in west virginia early season and then if that doesn't pay i'll go to ohio for the rut it's just it seems to to work out better that way so
1: is the um hunting pressure in ohio well i guess do you hunt Public or private or both in Ohio. I've always heard that Ohio's kind of bad for public land pressure, just from the standpoint that you got all those Northeast states, Ohio is kind of the first, you know, close good deer hunting state and everybody tries to flock there.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm lucky enough that I've got a few guys that we lease with and, you know, I've always had a lease over there. Um, I've scouted a lot of public and I've never actually hunted it and there, there is a lot of pressure on public for sure. Um, West Virginia, not so much. I don't really see anybody on public during postseason. So in West Virginia, I'll I'll hunt private and public both and I hardly ever see anybody, but, you know, definitely Ohio, when you get closer to the rut, there's, you know, there's trucks parked there on the public. So it's,
1: there's definitely some competition. Gotcha. Let's talk about, um, that Missouri trip last year a little bit. Um, yeah, I think you saw more deer than I did. And I think you saw bigger deer than I did, but you just, (laughs) I felt like you got so close and, and we were, we were pulling for you. Um, that one deer that you saw, did that, do you think that was, ended up being the same deer that Greg ended up shooting?
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that was a, that was a really fun trip and I saw, I saw more big deer there than i've ever seen anywhere and you know i came so close like you said that just just didn't work out i wanted to stay longer but um you know the gun season was coming in but um yeah i think that trip was like a perfect storm of weather and and several other things combined that made it really really good um i'm looking forward to going back out there this year
1: yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it as well. My expectations aren't going to be as high because, like he said, I think that was there was a lot of good things that all happened simultaneously on that trip. But uh, either way, I think it's going to be a blast again.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. That was that was a lot of fun getting to you know help you with your buck and Greg with his, and there were several others. But man, it was a. I think it was one of those you know Midwestern trips that you kind of dream of during the rut. It was just the way it worked out. It was awesome.
1: Yeah. Is that pretty similar habitat to what you've been kind of describing earlier with West Virginia, or do you guys have even a little bit different habitat than that?
0: Um, actually a lot different. Um, you know, we've got bigger hills here. Um, the hardwoods are a lot thicker here, a lot more greenbrier and you know, stuff like that. Like the part with, where we were at in Missouri at least there was you know not a underbrush and stuff yeah. like that it seemed like um then you had those big creek bottoms and stuff which that's that's a lot different we don't really have anything like that here you know our creek bottoms are pretty narrow and there's not you know a different vegetation type in them so you know the the creek and river bottoms in Missouri were that was a lot different for me like I don't really get to hunt stuff like that so that, that was one aspect of it that I really liked that was that was pretty cool when it was something different like
1: that, yeah, yeah same here we got river bottoms here too, and they're even different than what I imagine yours are like and what it was like in Missouri so yeah would you say that there's probably anything I guess you mentioned beast tactics but anything other than that that's been kind of uh, really pivotal or where you had a big market you know, increase in success or deer sightings or anything like that as you've kind of continued to hunt your, your whole entire life?
0: Um, I think just hunting more mobile. Um, you know, I started hunting with a saddle back in 2014 and then just kind of went down that rabbit hole of, you know, trying to be as lightweight as possible. And you know, doing that has made me go f- further. I'm not afraid to hike farther and, on steeper areas and thicker areas and stuff like that. And I think, you know, hunting with a saddle, you know, I've got into hunting a lot more, you know, a lot of areas that really aren't conducive to a tree stand, a lot of spots that are, you know, smaller trees and, you know, harder to get to, you know, hard, you know, crawling through brush and stuff like that. So I think hunting areas like that this past few years is really helped my success and, you know, couple of that with my aggressive hunting style, I consider myself pretty aggressive. Um, just those two things alone, I think have been the biggest keys to my success the last few years.
1: Okay. The, um, the, I guess the specifics of that saddle setup, you're using a phantom, uh, I'm, I'm sure, um, as far as your climbing method, yeah. are you using spurs for the most part, pretty much. Or are you also using sticks every now and then?
0: Yeah, both. Um, in
1: West Virginia, I can use spurs. So I use spurs a lot here. Um, and then
0: if I'm on liquor or whatever, I can't use them. I, I've got some, some of sticks that, that I use with, with haters and, um, yeah, using the, the how we we used this past year during testing and, you know, they don't play on it this year. So, um, Got yeah, my system pretty well
1: dialed in. I got
0: changes on this year, but uh you know, I'm running about as light as I could possibly get, but it's it's been pretty nice the past couple years with the gear that's coming out and that we get to use and it's uh it's a far cry from the fifty the pound climber that I was looking around.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, ever since we were in Missouri and we got to, to try the, the new tethered phantoms, Sam has been in love with the the comfort channels. Um, <laughs> and she has never once yet hunted out of an actual tree stand. We found it on the ground a couple of times oh, and we've no. hunted out of saddles and that's, that's pretty much all she knows. So the big thing for her this year is getting her a climbing method where she can get more than 12 feet off the ground without, uh, carrying yeah. in an extra 15 pounds of stuff. Yeah, for sure.
0: And, you know, I, I kind of dealt with the same thing this past year with my son. He's 11 and instead of, you know, starting him out with a tree stand, I just started him out with a saddle and, uh, you know, just the, the climbing aspect was the hardest part for sure. Getting, getting high enough and all
1: that. So that's definitely something to figure out. Mm -hmm. Are you, are you using, when you use sticks and and Aiders pretty much just like Three sticks would that be pretty average, or does it vary? Do you sometimes bring in four, sometimes two, on those areas that you have to use them? Um, usually three. I find three is usually enough.
0: Um, with an or I can get I can get over twenty feet pretty easy, and then I'll you know from the top stick I'll I'll set my platform another couple of feet above that, so I'll kind of have, have a big step up over the platform. So I usually find that three gets me high enough. And unless it's you know late season and there's no leaf cover and then I find myself where I I need a little bit more but for the most part I'm running three and that that gets me by
1: cool And I'd imagine too you probably always have the option of just once you have your third stick up just one stick moving that last stick up to your next higher height
0: yeah yeah I've definitely done that before and that's that's always a good trick to though no, just just so you don't have to carry an extra
1: stick so it's definitely nice do you have any luxury items in your setup or do you try and be as minimalist with everything as possible uh
0: not really um i really don't carry a whole lot you know these days you know i've got the camera gear that i take and i've even got that whittled down to <laughs> like just the bare essentials so um there's a lot of times I won't, I won't even carry a second angle. You know, I just, I don't like carrying all that stuff. So I've basically got a knife and my headlamp and uh, the rest of just camera stuff. So I didn't have that. I could, I could go without pack and I would be totally fine. But, um, you know, I've
1: been filming for years, so I just pretty much have to carry it with me. But
0: (laughs) if it wasn't for that, I'd be really, really light.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's i have kind of the same way where I try and pare that stuff down as much as I can. I've, and I've both been even doing the opposite where you're getting rid of all your extra angles and just keeping the main, you know, camera rig. And I've been trying to get away from the main camera rig and just keeping the extras.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good idea. And I've I've actually thought about that, you know, trying to kind of do what you do and, you know, use the head cam and some other stuff to, to make a, video instead of the main camera now that would be really nice actually to get away from the camera arm and all
1: that yeah it just seems like there's a lot of times where it gets in the way and either the extra movement is something that causes me to get spotted or i know i wouldn't have gotten spotted if i hadn't had the camera arm and and wanted to make the movement um, or looking down to look at the, the lcd screen whereas with the the head cam and just the second angles running. I can just focus on hunting. Really, assuming that I have everything running and you know, externally powered and and all that stuff. The trickiest yeah. thing is just th- getting good audio. If you only have like one second angle running and and you don't have great audio connected right to it, which usually you don't with action cams, then that can be yep. that can be the toughest part.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I know that messing with a main camera has cost me several deer over the over the years so it's definitely frustrating but um i guess i haven't just explored you know i haven't explored the the options like you use to to make it easier so i may have to look into that like with the the 360 camera and stuff like that it would definitely make it easier if you know it doesn't look like you're gonna get the shot on the main camera just kind of ditch it and right you know let the other cameras capture it so that would be nice
1: yeah i mean when you look at my last, like, I think five kills on camera, I don't know that I had the main camera running for, I don't know if I had the main camera on the deer for any of them, but I've gotten headcam footage of yeah. almost all of them. One of them Shane was filming from a different tree, which obviously that's like the gold standard if you can get away with a camera guy. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'll tell you right now, even without yeah. a, without a main camera, just there's no perfect setup. I haven't found like the perfect, there's always like little things and quirks that I just hate about um, even the setup that I have now and wish that I could make better, but I'm not, you know, when you get into the electronics like that, there's just not too much you can DIY. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, yeah. I'm like you, I've got my set up to where it's about as
0: good as it can be. And there's, there's nothing really out there that's better yet. I hoping that somebody will come along with a camera arm that's, that's, Super small, but really stable. But I haven't seen any yet. I'm hoping that somebody comes out with something here soon.
1: Yeah, it seems like there's definitely a trade-off there with with uh, compactness, weight, and just stiffness that you'd like to have.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's hard to get all those things in one, you know, one camera. But uh, I'm still hopeful that gonna have one there in the future.
1: Once turkey season rolls around the corner pretty quick here, are you going to be just using a normal camera tripod and like a shotgun mic? Is that pretty much your setup or do you, do you use something a little bit different or do you use a DSLR still for turkeys?
0: Yeah. So I have used the DSLR the past couple of years, but, um, I've got the Sony AX700 quarter, which I'll probably be using that this year with a tripod. Um, and probably just one second angle camera. Um, I don't like to carry a whole lot in the Turkey woods. So I usually just leave the camera on the tripod and, you know, carry it in my other arm, like a, like a second gun. So <laughs> yep. I try to stay away from, cause I, you know, I'm constantly moving and, and all that and running gun hunting.
1: So I just try to go as light as I possibly can. Do you carry a decoy too, or are you just basically trying to use the terrain to your advantage?
0: Um, so I, I carry a decoy with me and I rarely use it. I don't think I'm going to even carry it this year. I, I just, I'm at the point where I'm pretty decent at using the terrain and setting up. So when they, you know, they come around a corner, or log in or something like that, they're already in range. So, um, I think I'm just going to ditch the decoy this year. And I, I feel like it hurts me more than it helps me, honestly.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd say I definitely would like to not have to carry it uh, for sure. I've had yeah. some instances where it seems like it doesn't do anything and it's just like dead weight. And I've also had some instances where, um, say for example, a couple of years ago, I was archery hunting, running gun. And I stuck a big half strut Jake in the middle of a logging road as a bird was coming in and was literally you know just tucked into some brush like less than 10 yards away. And that Tom came in, and, and he started attacking that decoy, and I was able to get the full draw and get an arrow <laughs> off. And I know for a fact that would not have happened if that decoy wasn't there. So that, yeah, for sure. So that's you know, yeah. the same thing, yeah. yeah. Archery hunting, which I, I bought an archery tag in Minnesota just so I could hunt the whole season. I'll, I'll definitely bring a decoy out for that. But, yeah, I'm on the fence if I'll carry one just like you for uh, the remainder of the shotgun seasons, especially in hilly type of terrain when you can – you can really use that trained to your advantage or late in the season when you got that more that thicker foliage and you can use even like bends in the trail, like you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: And, you know, like you said, there's been situations where the decoy has absolutely, you know, made the difference. And then, you know, it just seems like 90% of the time it's dead weight. So I don't know I feel like I'd be just fine without it, but, I'll probably go up once, and then it'll be back in the pack. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, How many birds you're able to kill in West Virginia?
0: Um, so we can kill two here. Um, our season starts April 20th, and we can only hunt till one o'clock. And um, we, you know, we can't hunt all day, like at any point of the season. So it's it's always the clock cut off. But we can kill two birds here.
1: Do you hunt other states, too, or is it pretty much just West Virginia for turkey? I know you've killed a ton of birds over the years, it seems like, in West Virginia. Um,
0: I've traveled a little bit this year, hopefully. Um, you know, plans have kind of changed a little bit with this whole virus thing going around, but I'm going to try to make it to Tennessee here in maybe two weeks. Uh, I was supposed to go to Alabama with Parker McDonald, and that, you know, we kind of, Nick, that just because of all this going on, really wasn't sure about travel, but uh, I'm definitely gonna hunt West Virginia, possibly Ohio, um, maybe later in this and, and hopefully Tennessee. So maybe three states this year, um, <laughs> it won for sure, West Virginia, but yeah, I don't know, we'll see it
1: was out. Yeah, I may, may, there's a small chance, um, be joining you on that Tennessee trip, um. I was just, nice. talk, just talking to Greg today. The flights are dirt cheap um, to get down into that oh, area no, right dear. now from Minneapolis. <laughs> but, but I, I mean, there's a lot of things to work through. And I'm like I mentioned before, uh, before we started recording, I'm still uh, still working full-time and so is, so is my wife. So, we'll see. Um, I have to work some things around logistically and, and see if it makes sense or not. But there's a chance. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it'll
0: be... It'll be a fun trip, so I'm trying to work that out now. But um, yeah, like I said, our season doesn't open until April 20th, so I've got some time to to go, to hopefully, to another state. And I definitely like to get after them. I'm seeing all these people killing them right now; it's kind of making me jealous. So, oh, I, I know. Get out there.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough to film hunts when you're especially up here. I don't know how late your season goes, but our best hunting is like late May when most of the people have like. Moved on from turkey hunting, they're more just interested in like fishing, and grilling hamburgers and yeah. stuff. So it's like I'll I'll post videos in like late May and it's like nobody watches them because nobody cares anymore. Yeah. So just hang on to it for next year.
0: Yeah, I know by the time May hits, I'm I'm into smallmouth mode, and I I kind of I've had enough of them. And usually I'm frustrated with them by that point. Pretty young years, perfect dust in the hills. So you get two weeks of it going hardcore for them. I'm fed up with them and rage something
1: else. Yeah. Yeah, well you're you're definitely always welcome to to come up if you guys ever want to make a trip to the upper Midwest. We got uh a one yeah, bird sure. season in Minnesota, but a ton of public land in Minnesota and same thing with Wisconsin, a lot of public land and uh Wisconsin you can shoot pretty much as many birds as you want to buy tags for in the later seasons anyway. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be cool. uh,
0: You know, I haven't ventured out too much for turkeys yet, but you know, I'm hoping to in the next
1: couple of years, but, um, yeah, it's definitely fun nap. Cool. Well, I, I think we, we covered a lot of stuff it wasn't a terribly long podcast, but I mean, you gave some, <laughs> you gave some pretty good insight, especially on that, that real breakdown of that, you know, older buck that you shot. Um, yeah that was really good to get some visualization on exactly how that worked. And, and to really know that and, and gave confirmation to how that style can be really effective and specifically how you can set up to make it actually work out, even when the deer seemingly has a lot of this, those things in his advantage.
0: If, you know, if any of your listeners want to see that hunt, um, that I was talking about there, um. If you go to my Flinging Arrows YouTube channel, I've got a video on there called, called I Ambushed a Buck from His Bedroom. I think that's what it's called. and uh, I kind of break that hunt down and how I access the area and all that. And it, uh, It'll give you a little bit more insight on... Actually, a lot of my hunts kind of set up the, the, in a similar way in Hill Country. So if you want to check that out, and it'll kind of give you an
1: idea of how that hunt went down. Okay. And that channel, Flinging Arrows, that's spelt... About- f-l-i-n-g-i-n-a-i-r-o-s one word yep you got it. yep <laughs> gotcha cool where else can uh, people find your stuff Are you on instagram or facebook or anything like that
0: yeah i'm on instagram at j underscore s-h-a-f-30 um we also have another youtube channel me and a good friend of mine called Appalachia. if you want to check that out and I do a lot of the stuff for tethered as well so i'm kind of
1: all over the place but <laughs> yeah pretty much all the at least a large majority of the tethered marketing material is is your your handiwork right
0: yeah yeah that's kind of my job now or it has been since last august so i get to get to do all that full time now which is pretty cool but yeah i get to all the promotional and you know photography and stuff like that so it's pretty pretty cool deal
1: awesome well i appreciate having you on yeah it was fun Uh, it was good talking to you that'll do it for this episode as always make sure to follow the sportsman's nation on facebook instagram and youtube leave us a review on itunes and if you're looking for additional content from bobby boswell or myself subscribe to diy sportsman and boudreaux boswell on youtube and with that